So as many of you know, we're making our way through this book of Revelation. We're coming to the, the concluding chapters of Revelation. This Wednesday evening, we're going to be looking at the 21st chapter. And so come on out and join us as we look at the details of chapter 21. Uh, last week, we looked at chapters 19 and 20, but I just sort of felt impressed that we need to look more specifically at these verses here at the end of the 20th chapter today. So just to uh, set things in their, their uh, chronological order based upon what the book is telling us here, as we come to chapter 11 of verse 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ, which will begin at the end of the Great Tribulation. That thousand-year reign of Christ has now uh, uh, come to a conclusion. And so for 1,000 years, Jesus is going to reign upon the throne of David and over the house of Jacob, over the whole world from the city of Jerusalem. But at the end of the thousand years, there will be a brief rebellion. Again, in our chronological context here, the final rebellion has been put down and Satan has been cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet have already been. And so at this point, we stand on the threshold of the eternal age. And the things that will happen after this are the, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, and then all of the, the details of how um, that will just play itself out e eternally. And, and so that's the, the order of things here. But before we move into looking at the, the eternal age, there's this one final issue that is dealt with, and that is the judgment. So it is the final judgment that we are looking at as we consider verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20, that all men are finally and ultimately accountable to God is the message of the Bible from start to finish, that there is a day coming in which God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ is an inescapable fact. So like I said, this is a, such a sobering text. And it's one of those things that we probably would rather just sort of read it over, maybe skim over it, but not think too much about it. But it's really important that we give serious, serious thought to these things here. Because, of course, many, many people have, and many people still do today, they reject the idea that there is any kind of a future judgment, and they comfort themselves with uh, false ideas. They comfort themselves with uh, ideas like there is no God. Therefore, obviously, there is no judgment. They say that when you die, you die, you cease to exist. There's nothing beyond the grave. That's the mentality of many in our culture today. Others might not go so far as to uh, take an atheistic position, but others would say, well, even if there is a God, uh, of course, he's a God of love and he's never going to really 
judge anybody in the sense of sending anyone to hell eternally. Uh, others might say if there really is a judgment, surely it is only for the truly evil people. And they might say, and you know, I'm not that bad of a person. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, at least uh, in comparison to others. But these ideas, although they're quite prevalent in the minds of many, these ideas uh, cannot alter the truth that there is a day of reckoning coming for all people. And like I said, this is the message of the Bible from the beginning to the end. The prophets said it, Jesus said it, the apostles said it. It is one of the, the themes of scripture that there is a final judgment day for each and every person. Let me give you some examples from the scripture. Daniel chapter 12, verse two. And, and this is just one example from the prophets. There are many others that we could uh, refer to. But Daniel chapter 12, verse two says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel is being uh, given a, a vision of things that are going to happen at the end. Jesus, he himself spoke of a coming day of judgment. Jesus uh, warned those cities that he had done most of his mighty works in. Uh, the three cities that he names are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he says to each of those cities, he said it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. It would be more tolerable even for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. So Jesus points to a specific day of judgment. Paul, the apostle, speaking uh, to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he said this, he said, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising that man from the dead. And then Paul, a bit later, as he was giving his defense before the Judean governor, Felix, it says that Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So my point is simply that this is what the Bible teaches. Now, of course, there are people today who say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really teach that there's a judgment coming. I don't know what Bible they're reading, but obviously it's not the, the Bible that we all have because it doesn't matter what version you happen to read, it all is essentially telling us the same thing. And this has been the belief of the church from the very earliest days. You know, in the early days of the church, it, seeking to kind of uh, encapsulate the, the overall teaching of the gospel, they developed what are known as, as the creeds. And so you have a, a number of different creeds that just sort of summarized what the message of the gospel was. You have the Athanasian Creed, you have the Nicene Creed, you have uh, the Apostles' Creed. They're all very similar. But in each one of the creeds, interestingly, they made it clear that part of the overall picture of the message that Christ bring 
the message that Christ brought was that there would be a day of judgment. Let me read to you from the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So this was, this was clear in all of those ancient creeds. Of course, drawing on what scripture said, that there would be a final day of judgment. Now, what Daniel was talking about, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. What Jesus was talking about when he said on judgment day, what Paul was talking about when he said God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness and so forth, that all of those are references to this event that we're reading about here in Revelation. This is the final judgment. And so what we want to do is we want to just sort of break down the, the passage and look at some of the details of the final judgment, beginning with what John described as seeing a great white throne, a great white throne. Now, in, in the book of Revelation, you have a lot of symbolic language in the, and, and what I mean by symbolic is that you know, th certain things uh, are used to speak about um, things in, in a little more detail than they have, than they might just naturally appear. So, a white throne. Okay, so a, a white throne. Well, okay, it's a white throne. But no, white is symbolic. White means something. The fact that it's a white throne speaks of the fact that God judges the world in holiness, righteousness, and purity. That is the standard. So the white throne, the fact that it's white, is reminding us that this judgment of God is an absolutely righteous judgment. It's an absolutely holy judgment. It's an absolutely pure judgment. So there's nothing unjust. There's no inequity. There's, there's no unfairness. As, as Paul said, God will judge the world in righteousness. And, and this is the thing that we need to know even at, at this stage. We need to know that when it's all said and done, when the judgment finally comes down, God will be vindicated when the judgment comes down. There will not be a single voice in all the universe that would say, well, this isn't fair. This shouldn't be this way. This is unjust. As a matter of fact, I believe that even the condemned will be in agreement at this point with their own condemnation. And so it is the great white throne. And notice what it says. It says, before whose face, speaking of the one who sat up on the throne, God, before whose face heaven and earth fled. Heaven and earth fled. Now, the Bible in different places tells us about God and his glory, how his glory is so great that we as people could not 
actually endure his presence and survive because of the greatness of his glory. Back in the time of Moses, Moses who had a very unique and a special relationship with God where the scripture even refers to Moses having sort of like face-to-face conversations with God. At a certain point, Moses says to God, he says, Lord, if I found favor in your sight, show me your glory. What Moses is asking for is he's asking to see God in his true essence, like just without any kind of veiling, without any... um, filtering. He's just saying, God, I want to see you for who you are in in all of your glory. And the Lord's response is, Moses, no one can see me and live. To see God would be to be utterly consumed. It reminds me of what Paul said in writing to Timothy. He said that our Lord Jesus Christ will manifest in his own time who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. You know, sometimes people mistakenly think that when they have their day in court, so to speak, when they have their day before God to present their case, they are going to give God a piece of their mind. They're gonna tell God a thing or two. And you've probably heard people say that. I certainly have heard people say that. I've heard atheists, ironically, boast about what they're gonna say to God, the God who they say doesn't exist. Uh, (laughs) That's the irony. Uh, you know, the things that they're going to say to this God. But the fact of the matter is, no one's going to say anything. Because heaven and earth itself are going to flee from the very face of him who sits on the throne. The, The created universe, the material universe will vanish at the awful majesty of God. That's what's being spoken of here. And we know that this is a literal thing that's being talked about because as we move on from here, we have to have a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. When did it pass away? When did it pass away? There when God sat up on the throne to judge. So this is the most awesome moment in all of history. And notice now it says that I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. I saw the dead, small and great. Every single person who has ever lived, and in this particular case, every person who has lived and died without faith in the one true God, those are the ones who are there before the throne. It's important that we make that distinction. No believer will participate in this judgment that is going to take place here. This is a a judgment that is exclusively for those who have refused to believe throughout all of the ages. So whether they are unknown or well-known, the dead, small, and great, those who were known only to their uh, immediate 
circle of family and friends, but all of the great men and women of the earth as well. All of the, the great uh, rulers, the pharaohs and the Caesars and all, all of those kinds of people and all of the great philosophical minds that have influenced people over the ages and all of the, the celebrities, you know, all of the, the well-known, the famous people, they will be there along with the completely obscure those that were known only to their immediate circle of friends. They are the ones that are being referred to here, the dead, small and great. And notice it says that the sea, death, and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Now, this has puzzled people at times. They wonder, well, what, you know, what is this talking about? What does it mean that the sea gave up the dead? Well, this is telling us that at this judgment, the spirits of those who have died are going to be reunited with their bodies. The sea, all of those who have died at sea and their bodies have uh, been cast into the sea over all of the long centuries. It's, it's just a way of referring to the fact that the body and the spirit are going to be reunited. So man is going to be judged at the great white throne in his original body. And they're as, as human beings in the sense that there's no longer a disconnect between the, the soul or the spirit and the body. They are now reunited. So death and hell are just a way of referring to the grave itself. And so these masses of people will there be assembled before the throne and this will no doubt be the most sobering moment in history. And for those standing there, the most horrifying experience possible. Now, listen, we have to think about this because this is, this is hard, cold reality. The person who dies in their sin, those are the ones who are going to be standing here at this throne to be judged. And, you know, like I said, this is so sobering because when you, when you think about it, you know, the moment a person dies, that is the end of opportunity. Opportunity for salvation, opportunity to be delivered from this day of judgment is available to us as long as we're breathing. But the moment a person dies, that opportunity is passed. And can you imagine, because every single soul, every single person that is gathered here, the billions of people that will be there on that day, these are the ones who squandered their opportunity for salvation and now have to face the reality of an eternal judgment. And as, as I thought about this, and it's, it's kind of frightening and painful to think of, but you think about it, you know, once death comes, that is the end of the opportunity. And it's an irreversible situation. It cannot be changed. So that's why the Bible urges us. That's why there's uh, this, this call that continues to go out. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because once we pass from this life into the next, it, we go beyond that point of no return. 
And that's what is being spoken of here. And so that to me is why it would be the most horrifying experience possible. For all of those standing at the great white throne are there to receive their sentence of eternal separation from God. That's what's happening at this great white throne. This is not a place where it's going to be decided whether somebody is going to go on into heaven or God's kingdom or however we want to describe it. That's not happening here. That's already been determined. So everyone here is here to be eternally sentenced to an eternity of separation from God and all his goodness, love, and blessing. These are the damned, and this judgment is to show why they are damned. And so we read here that the dead, small and great, they stand before God and books were opened. Books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, what are these books? Notice it's books, plural. Well, we're told that one of the books is the, the book of life. And later it's referred to as the Lamb's book of life. What are the other books? Well, one of them is obviously a book that records the deeds of all people because it says that they were judged out of the books according to their works. You know, we, we oftentimes forget that there is... No one, and there never has been anyone that's getting away with anything because it's all being recorded. And although it might be overlooked today because of injustice, perhaps in our judicial system or just in the way the, the world has worked, and there might be occasions where we look at a situation and we think, man, that is so unfair. That person, look what they did. Look what they got away with. The truth of the matter is no one is ever getting away with anything. It's all being recorded. And people are going to be judged based upon the things that they did. That is what we are told here. And as we look at the totality of scripture, what it comes down to is this. Every thought, every word, every deed are all being recorded. Jesus said an astounding thing. He said, every idle word that men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. The day of judgment he's talking about is the day that we're looking at here. He says, every idle word. So every idle word that's been uttered is being recorded Every word, every deed, every desire. So again, for the person who thinks, you know, when I get there before God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two about what was real. No, God's going to tell us what was real. And this isn't going to happen, but let's just say if it did. You know, as, as the case is being laid out, if someone were to uh, insist that, no, 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 that, that's not really the way it happened. Okay, well, let's just open the book and see. See, it's all there. The thoughts, the intents. The Bible reminds us that God 
tries the thoughts of the heart, the intents of the heart. And those, those are all of the things that are taken into consideration. So there is the book of works, the works that we have done. The other book, I think, is the book of the law. Because the Bible says that it's, it's the, the law of God that is the standard by which we are going to be judged in the end. For those who do not receive God's grace and his mercy then the law will become the standard. Jesus said that heaven and earth would pass away and not one jot or tittle would pass from the law before heaven and earth passed away. Now, that's significant considering the fact that we live in a time where the, 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 the public voice is saying, uh, we don't want to hear about the law of God. We don't want to even see anything that reminds us of the law of God. Our courts have gone so far as to say that it's unconstitutional to have the Ten Commandments posted in a public place, although they are posted in the Supreme Court, the very court that says you can't post them in a public place. But this is, this is the mentality, but it's that very law, and when I say the law of God, the book of the law, we're talking about the summation of the law, which is made up in the Ten Commandments. Not all of the, the, um, the there's other aspects, of course, to the Mosaic law that were, had to do with the ritual, had to do with the legislation of the nation, but, but the core that's applicable to all people, all nations for all time, are the, the Ten Commandments. And so, Here's a book with everybody's deeds, everybody's desires, everybody's thoughts, everybody's intent. It's all, it's all recorded there. There's the book of the law, and it is all there to testify. But then there's the reference to the book of life as well. Why is the book of life opened here? The book of life is opened here so that it might be scanned, I believe, to show that the person who is being condemned does not have their name written in the book. Now, this then leads to the sentencing. And we read as we go on that they were judged according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we have a reference to the lake of fire and the second death, and they are essentially the same thing. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire. Why is it the second death? Because, of course, it follows after the physical death comes first, but now this is spiritual and eternal death. That's what's being described here. So the lake of fire, remember, is where the beast and the false prophet and the devil are at this point. Now they will be joined by all of those who have followed Satan throughout the ages. You see, remember, Jesus told us that this place, this lake of fire, was not created with man in mind. God did not create this place for people to be cast into. 
Jesus told us specifically that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, but yet it will be populated by human beings. Why? Because human beings have followed the devil and his revolt against God. And so their ultimate destiny will be the same as his, to be cast into the lake of fire. Now, as we think about all of this, and as we let it really sink in, of course, there is that temptation. There can be that temptation on our part to think, well, I don't know, this all sounds so severe. It all sounds so heavy. I don't know if this is really fair. But listen, remember this, that, the, that this judgment comes after every attempt on God's part to turn men from sin and rebellion to himself uh, has failed. The people that we're talking about here are the, the pharaohs of the world. And I say the pharaohs of the world because maybe you remember in the story of, of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says to him, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And Pharaoh persisted in that attitude all the way to the end, even though on 10 different occasions, God gave him an opportunity to change his mind. That's what we're looking at here. Every single person that's here is a person who, in a sense, is like Pharaoh. They have rebuffed every opportunity that God gave them to repent. And they've maintained until their dying breath that attitude of who is the Lord that I should obey him. It, it is astounding to think that there are people that, that are in that kind of an entrenched position against God, but it is a reality. Not only that there are some people, the fact of the matter is that most people are like this. So remember that. These are those who we read about earlier in Revelation. Maybe you remember as we've been going through Revelation on a couple of occasions, we, we read about those who, despite all of God's efforts to turn them from their sin, the judgment that's being poured out, all of the things that are happening, that it says that they, they still did not repent even though they knew that it was God's judgment, even though that uh, the angels were flying through the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel warning about receiving the mark of the beast and all of those things, even knowing all of that, it says they still did not repent of their sorcery, of their fornication or sexual immorality. They did not uh, repent of their murders and their theft and the things that he mentions there. Actually, uh, the 21st chapter, the eighth verse spells it all out because once again, it describes those who will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. It says they are the cowardly and cowardly here refers to those who were cowardly in the sense they would not stand for God against the, the, the tide of evil. They were unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. So again, lest we 
somehow get tempted in some way to think that there's some sort of unfairness on the part of God, know that that is not the case at all. You see, what we really are dealing with here is those who are possessed with the Invictus spirit right to the very end. The Invictus spirit is expressed in William Ernest Henley's uh, poem by that same title. It's a poem that you will have at least heard part of it. Let me read it to you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And then the most famous stanza, it matters not, listen to these words, it matters not how straight the gate, Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, the scroll of scripture, the warnings of judgment. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the heart that is just resisted to the very end. Every effort on the part of God to bring that soul to repentance. These were the words uttered by Timothy McVeigh before he was executed for his crimes in uh, Oklahoma City. But again, my point is this. This is the attitude that has brought every single person who will stand before the great white throne. This, in whatever way it was manifested, this is the heart that has brought them to this place. They have brought this eternal judgment upon themselves. They have refused the mercy of God. And now there is no further opportunity. And to me, that is the most horrifying thing of all, to think of that. And, and of course, we're, it, we have the reference here to the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. Some people have said, well, you know, Revelation is full of symbolism. That's probably symbolic, not real. Well, you know what? If it's symbolic, it's telling you something that's really, really bad. Whether it's literal or symbolic, it's, if it's symbolic, it's a picture of something that's like that. But the, of course, the, the torment, the great torment of eternity for the lost will be this, no doubt, that they put themselves there. This is the, the, the ultimate regret and again, to think this through for a moment and, and to put yourself in this place just for a moment, think about shunning God, rejecting those opportunities that he's extended to you, uh, his, those, those opportunities to receive his mercy, and then finding yourself suddenly dead and in an irreversible situation 
because that's where everybody is at this point. It's an irreversible situation. And they are there before the throne, like I said, not to determine whether they will be allowed to go into heaven, but to be publicly sentenced for their crimes against God and to be forever banished from his presence. Now, again, let me make this clear. This is not a judgment for believers. Some people are confused about this because we are told that, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No, the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment are two totally different things. The judgment seat of Christ is a place where believers will be brought before the Lord to be rewarded for the things that they have done in the body, for the things that God has appointed for us as his people. And there will be the reward for faithful service. There will be a lack of reward for unfaithfulness. There is a, a slight bit of uh, possible negativity to that, but it, the issue there is not eternal salvation. You see, eternal salvation is determined now by what we do with Christ. So believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of those at the great white throne are, as I said in the beginning, they are all those who have died in unbelief. They have died in rebellion. They have died refusing to submit to the authority of the one who made them. And they all will discover immediately that they were not in control of their own destiny, but that God finally is. Now, that brings us finally to the book of life. And later on in Revelation here, it is referred to more specifically as the Lamb's book of life. And so, as I said, we see here in the text that the book of life is there at the final judgment. It is to show that their names are not written in it, but no one written in the Lamb's book of life will experience the second death. What is the Lamb's book of life? It is the record of all those who have been washed and made clean in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's what the Lamb's book of life is. It gives the names of all those who have put their trust in him. It is the list of the names of the citizens of the everlasting kingdom of Christ and God. How does one's name get put in the Lamb's book of life? Well, it is put there as we put our faith and trust in Christ. All the references to the book of life in the scripture are referring to those who have trusted in Christ. Now, here's the thing that we have to remember. Everybody's name could have been there. Everybody's name should have been there. And, you know, there's even one possibility that originally everybody's name was there. Because Jesus died for every single person who ever has or ever will live. And so it's quite possible that those whose names are not there 
have had their names removed. But you see, God's desire is that everyone's name be there. We know that not everyone's name will be there, but it's not because God doesn't desire that. Jesus died for everyone. So potentially everyone's name could be there because God is not willing that any should perish. God is desiring that all people come to repentance. That's the message of the gospel. And the way to assure that our names are written in the book of life, there's only one way to assure that, and that is to put our personal faith and trust in Christ. That's how you know. And this is something that nobody wants to be vague about. I don't want to have any uncertainty as to whether my name is in the book of life or not. Because once I'm dead, there's nothing that I can do about it. I can only make sure that my name is in the book of life while I'm alive. And so God gives us those opportunities. But you see, we, we don't know when the, the opportunity will pass and pass permanently. Now, some might say, well, look, you know, I just don't believe this. I, I just don't believe there's this kind of a judgment coming. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe in death? Do you believe you're going to die? Whether you believe it or not, you're going to. You can't stop it. It's inescapable. There's nothing you can do about it. There's a moment in time. Death's going to grab hold of you and pull you down, and you're gone. And you can fight and kick and argue and scream and protest, but it's, it, there's, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. You know what? Death is just the first phase of judgment. And just like there is death, because the reason death exists, according to the Bible, it's all connected. It's connected to sin. Were it not for sin, there would be no death. The fact that there is death, to me, is one of the strongest proofs that everything the Bible says is true. There's nobody that can explain why we die. And everybody admits that no one really wants to die. And everybody tries to some degree or another to get it out of their mind that they're going to die, but it's inescapable. You can't prevent it from happening. And likewise, the judgment that follows is equally inescapable because it is appointed to men to die once. And after this, the judgment, they go hand in hand. So if you doubt that you're going to be judged, then you must doubt that you're going to die. And if you doubt that you're going to die, you're under a delusion. There's no escaping it. But the escape is, of course, in regard to the judgment aspect of it. For no one whose name is in the book of life will stand before the great white throne to be judged because our sins have already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus said this. He said, whoever hears my voice and believes in the one who sent me, John 5, 24, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Passed from death. There is no second death. Shall not come into judgment, 
There is no judgment day. You see, Christ took our judgment. That's what was happening on the cross. And so the thing that we want to do while we have the opportunity is to make sure that our names are written in the book of life. You know, as a lady was leaving the service earlier this morning, she said, oh man, I, you know, I, she, I don't remember the exact words, but it was sort of like, I want to work harder to make sure my name is written in the book. And a, a friend was with her and she says, oh honey, you don't have to work any harder. Your name is written in the book because you believe in Jesus. She was right. I was going to tell the lady the same thing, but her friend got to her before I did. So as we're looking at this, what are we talking about? We're talking about believing in Jesus in the, in the truest sense of what that means. That we have been washed and cleansed in his blood. That our sins have been atoned for. That our names have been written in his book. And again, the book of life contains the names of all those who have believed in Christ, believed in him. That's the way to know that your name is written in the book of life. Do you believe in him? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Are you, are you following him? Are you loving him? Are you living for him? Because if you've truly put your faith and trust in him, that is going to be evidenced by the fact that you're, you're living a life now that is devoted to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And so may there not be a single person here with us today or listening to us today that has not made sure that their name is there in that book of life. If you haven't opened your heart to receive Christ truly, I urge you to do that today. Lord, we thank you for the amazing grace of the gospel. Lord, because every one of us, if left to ourselves, if, if we had to stand before the great white throne, Lord, there wouldn't be any possibility that we would be able to make the grade. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We confess that. We acknowledge that. We thank you, Lord, that you have made a way. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, that if we trust in Christ, our names are written in the book of life. And Lord, may that be the case with every one of us today. And Lord, as we consider the the heaviness of this topic as we're sobered, as we think about the reality of these things. Lord, may this create in us a, an urgency to pray more and to seek out opportunities to share the truth that others would be turned off the path to destruction and brought into that place of mercy and grace and forgiveness through Christ. Lord, thank you that you've saved us. Thank you that you have delivered us from so great a death. Thank you, Lord, that for those who have trusted in you, there is a kingdom that's coming. 
And Lord, as we think about that over the next few weeks, may our hearts be overwhelmed with joy as we think of your goodness and your grace. Lord, we do think of loved ones that are yet living lives of resistance to you. Oh, Lord, turn their hearts toward yourself, we pray. Have mercy upon them. Lord, don't let them die in their sins. We thank you for your mercy. Extend it to them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.